autistic people with quality of life and opportunity. You're listening to the Autism CRC podcast. This is the Autism at Work speaker series featuring pre-recorded audio captured during the live Autism at Work virtual summit event held in March 2023. Hear from over 40 local and international speakers, panelists and presenters, including neurodivergent employees and employers, as they discuss the important topics affecting autistic people at work. You can also watch this series on the Autism CRC YouTube channel. Good morning. So welcome along, everyone. Uh, And it's great to see you once again. If this is uh, your second time around or multiple times around, we're here at the 2023 Autism at Work Virtual Summit. Uh, I'm Orion Kelly, and uh, I'm going to be with you for quite a few sessions over the next couple of days. And once again, here we are on a uh, completely virtual summit, lots of working parts, (laughs) <laughs> lots of windows open, a bit like my brain. Now, we have an action-packed program agenda for you. Very excited to get started. Let's do it. The summit is hosted by Autism CRC and DXC Technology and is made possible by the wonderful support of our sponsors, Untapped, GHD Engineering, uh, Latrobe University, ANZ, and SAP. Before we begin, we're going to play uh, some, some audio and acknowledgement of country from Elise Muller. Elise was not able to join us live, so she's kindly provided us with a recorded acknowledgement. We're gonna listen to that now. Good morning, Yama. My name is Elise Muller. I'm a proud First Nation Koori from Wiradjuri and Palawa country. And I live and work on Wurundjeri country in Nam or Melbourne. I join you here today, proud in my intersectional identities as an autistic person and part of the LGBTQIA community. On behalf of Autism CRC, I've been asked to do the Acknowledgement of Country for the Autism at Work 2023 Virtual Summit. So, just like you'd knock on someone's door acknowledging that it's their house and asking to be let in by the house owner, it is custom for us to acknowledge whose land we're on. Today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land we are meeting on. I acknowledge the Ananul people, the Palmer people, the Koori people, the Noongar people, the Nangars, the Palawa people, the Wongais, the Yumaji, and the Yungungu people. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We pay respects to the diverse cultures, laws, customs, language, dreaming and songlines. We recognise the continual connection to land, sea and waters. We acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as caretakers of the land and waters. And we are at one, who are at one with Mother Earth and that our sovereignty was never ceded. I acknowledge country and I would like to pay respects to our ancestors, the ancestors of the oldest living culture in the world, their resilience and adaptability through surviving the ice age, invasion, dispossession of land, stolen generation, amongst other atrocities. One of the biggest contributing factors to our survival is that we work as a collective, as a community, working one with Mother Earth and adapting. I would like to also acknowledge the strengths of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders and celebrate the achievements and knowledge and expertise. I also acknowledge all autistic people meeting today and in our community. As neurodivergent people with intersectional needs and identities, I acknowledge our resilience and efforts emerging and adapting. 
and living in a world not designed with our strengths and support requirements in mind. I acknowledge your lived experience and unique wisdom that you bring. I acknowledge the champion changemakers and advocates, the people who saw our strengths and fought for better. And finally, the employers, potential employers and allies joining today, I acknowledge your journey that has brought you here and am excited for what you can implement to create accessibility so that our community can better include and utilize the amazing gifts of us autistics. Today, we are uniting from all walks of life with openness, creating and transferring knowledge, uplifting our spirits. Let's all connect and keep each other strong to build a better future for ourselves and for all. In the words of Bunjil, if you respect the land, the waterways and his people, which is all people, you belong. And we come together to respect the three values, to come together to celebrate, to respect diversity and to create spaces for learning and sharing of knowledge. Thank you, everyone. I'm Elise Muller and enjoy what is going to be an amazing Autism at Work 2023 virtual summit. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Elise. That was great. Appreciate that. And let's move on now to talking a bit about the theme for the summit. It's building capacity. So welcome along. Uh, I, I've just been, yep, just been told we've had a 10 million people register. That's just in case the government are watching. <laughs> <clears throat> um, and it's going to be an amazing couple of days. Uh, it's exciting to see so many people interested in learning from a growing number of organisations who are building capacity within their organisations, their workforce and their work practices to attract and retain a neurodiverse workforce, in turn reaping the rewards that workforce brings with it. There's a, a little arrow, a little kind of bracket thing here. I'll just be really quick with this. It says uh, um, optional. A brief explanation about why a neurodiverse employment is important to you, Orion. Um, start as it's optional. So uh, what I would say is, and this is it, I'm going to say one line of moving on because we're running late because I stuffed up at the start. And that's what I do. I'm autistic and a bit of a stuffer. Um, what I want to say is I'm looking for reasonable adjustments to people, not things. I'm looking for reasonable adjustments to people, not things. Tweet that. I would now like to introduce uh, Andrew Davis, CEO of Autism CRC, to officially open the summit. Sir Andrew, my friend, take the stage. Uh, thanks, Orion. And uh, um, sounds a bit uh, officious, officially opening it. You know? But Michael and I, Michael Fieldhouse from DXC, uh, would very much like to welcome people to the 2023. Uh, Autism at Work Summit. It's the fifth such event and the second time we've met in this virtual environment. And as Orion said, it's wonderful to see such significant interest in the summit and improving employment opportunities, experiences and outcomes, building capability for autistic employees, their colleagues and employers. Uh, I must thank you for your interest and my thanks also to Michael Fieldhouse and the team at DXC and all our sponsors for your tremendous support of the summit. Uh, so much has happened since the, our last summit in August of 2021. For a start, we've come through the darkest days of a pandemic. This created workplace and workforce challenges like we'd never experienced before. It dramatically changed the way we work, where we work from, and how we interact with our colleagues, clients, and staff. 
It tested our capability to deliver services, support our workforce, and to think a little differently. Uh, during that time, I got tapped in the world of Autism CRC as well. We've transitioned to life post our Foundation Commonwealth Cooperative Research Centre program, with that program ceasing on the 30th of June last year. With our members, we began our new life on 1 July, and we continue to operate our successful collaborative model for the conduct of research and its translation to practice. Autism CRC and our collaborating partners continue to pursue our vision to see autistic people with quality of life and opportunity. Much of our work is focused on delivering and refining evidence-based practical resources and tools to improve the transition from school to post-school education and employment. We remain committed to inclusive research practices and co-production with autistic people and their supporters, and to ensure that our research provides practical and tangible outputs that benefit the whole community. And some of these outputs and resources, such as the My Way Employability um, app, will be, you'll be hearing more about that later on in the program. The other thing that's obviously changed since we last met is that we have a new Australian government. And I've received a message from the Minister for Social Services, the Honourable Amanda Rishworth MP, that she's asked me to read to you. It is with regret that I am unable to join with you today to celebrate the promotion of inclusive and open employment for autistic Australians and to open the 2023 Autism at Work Virtual Summit. I know that everyone deserves inclusive, accessible and welcoming spaces, whether as a workspace, a space to learn, to thrive or to find community. I also know, unfortunately, barriers for people with disability continue to persist the Australian Government is committed to addressing those barriers in collaboration with the disability community, families, researchers and practitioners. I know that while we have made many gains over recent years in terms of inclusive employment, there is much work still to do. The Government's commitment to develop a national autism strategy is intended to build on the work of previous, the previous Senate Select Committee on Autism and to bring together and centre the voices of autistic people. I appreciate that our shared commitment to listening to and acting on the views of autistic people is also key to the success of the two-day Autism at Work virtual summit. I understand that at the last summit, more than 500 delegates were in attendance and more than 50 speakers participated over the two days, including autistic adults, employers, family members and carers, educators, service providers, researchers and students. The virtual nature of the summit also demonstrates a commitment to inclusive planning and enabling a broad variety of participants to attend. The proposed panels, ranging from autistic experiences of employment to HR practices, highlight the need for a concerted and integrated approach in changing employer culture and improving employment outcomes. I would like to take the opportunity to recognise the work of Autism CRC, DXC and other partners in organising and contributing to the summit the success of the summit comes down to the opportunities that your cooperation and engagement will provide for people with disability. Recognising your commitment, I am sure the summit will be a success. Yours sincerely, Amanda Rishworth, MP, Minister for Social Services. As the Minister said, the new government has committed to the co-design of a national autism strategy that is informed by the experiences of autistic people, their families and carers, and those who work to support them. 
a comprehensive national consultation process and co-design of the strategy are to be guided by an oversight council and assisted by four working groups, one of which is focusing on economic inclusion and employment being one of the main areas of focus for the national strategy itself. There's an expression of interest process underway now for participation in the council and the working groups, and there'll be more news on this at the end of the summit. But for now, that's enough for me. Over the next two days, I hope that you can join us as we draw on the expertise and experience of over 40 speakers and panellists. Together, we can discover and learn more, building our capability to support dynamic and inclusive neurodiverse workplaces. We wish you a warm welcome. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Andrew. Fantastic. We really do appreciate that. And now you would have seen by now our program covers many, many important topics, including supporting mental health in the workplace, existing HR policies to support neurodiverse talent, employer and employee experiences, insights from higher education and advocacy in the workplace. In addition to the main agenda, we also have our exhibition hall, which includes exhibition booths by Asa and Tara and Reframing Autism. I'd now like to introduce you to Michael Fieldhouse to say a few words of welcome. Michael is DXC's technology social impact practice leader and director of cybersecurity and the executive for DXC's Dandelion program. Over to you, Michael. Thanks, Ryan. And first, I'd like to say thank you, um, Andrew, for those kind words. And again, welcome everyone to the 2023, I can't believe it's 2023, Autism at Work Summit. It's our fifth um, um, summit, which is I still can't believe. You know, we've got um, we've done five five summits, but a little break in between um, due to COVID. Um, but the actual pandemic created a few opportunities um, to embrace a, a virtual summit, which was we were able to get content from and uh, speakers from all over the globe. Which is we're going to I'm really looking forward to um, hearing um, Tom speak as one of our um, one of our keynotes. And I think important for us is that we can obviously embrace this technology to really um, you know, make it accessible for everyone. Um, also like to welcome attendees actually from all over the globe, which is this is where this, uh, this kind of platform allows us to actually provide a, a bit more amplifying our impact to spread the news and how to actually work with you know, um, creating accessibility uh, uh, workplaces. Um, also like to thank the Autism CRC for their partnership in the summit um, and also like to thank our uh, partners and sponsors, UNTAP, GHD, Latrobe, ANZ Bank and SAP. The summit can only be made possible by these partners and sponsors. And a big call out to the working group that's been involved in setting up the summit um, for the last six months and a special thanks to Andrew, Ed, Eddie and, and Wojcik. Um, and also a final thanks to all our speakers and panellists and participants who have actually, you're going to add extraordinary value in this summit and make it a real reality. Um, the summit's theme is about um, building capability, and that might be from starting a program um, to sustaining a program, um, and also having a program thrive and um, even support your existing employees. So we're going to hear a range of actually um, uh, speakers and also uh, sessions around this. Again, DXC um, Technology is committed to growing our program, which over the last year we've been uh, expanding that um, globally, um, introducing programs in the United Kingdom, Poland, 
Bulgaria, and also be very shortly the Philippines. We also continue to um, support research and, and open source that research and our learnings through Cornell University, um, the Neurodiversity Hub via Untapped. And um, we've had over 600 plus organizations across 99 countries download and leverage this material. We also have been very, um, as Ryan said, very focused on um, mental health um, and also commissioning independent research in this area and really how we can actually create sustainable employment. Again, I would like to welcome everyone. Welcome everyone. And again, and if you have anything, um, please reach out to us and thank you and enjoy the actual summit. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Uh, well done, Michael. Well, uh, before we get started on our very first uh, keynote, just a, a couple of quick things. So uh, I'm, my name is uh, Orion Kelly, and it's a, it is great to see you once, uh, once again, or maybe for the first time, uh, almost a, a thousand people officially uh, watching. So personally, just can I just thank you personally, thank you for taking the time to register and to be here. It means a lot to me you know, as an autistic guy who has an autistic son. Um, there's probably nothing more that you can do right now than, than listen. So I do appreciate uh, you being here. Also, the, the theme, uh, building uh, capability, I believe. Did I say capacity? Um, semantics, does it mean anything different? I don't know. But building, uh, sorry, building capability is the theme, which is fantastic. Okay, now it's time to get things really started, my friends. You're in for a treat, our first keynote session from Tom Derry. Now, Tom, but well, actually, before I hand over to Tom, let me tell you uh, a few things. I'd like to let you know that uh, you have the opportunity to submit questions. Now, as Tom talks, you might have questions pop up. Great. Okay. So at any time, at any time during the session, just type your questions in the Q&A pane. Okay. So you can see that Q&A pane, uh, put your questions in there, my friends. You can access that pane by clicking on the Q&A tab on the right-hand side of your screen. And other people's questions, they'll appear as well in your Q&A pane. Now, once they've been approved by our moderators, if you like a question, maybe you don't want to come up with one yourself, you just, oh, that's a good one. Well, you want to, and you want to get that answered as well. You can give it an upvote by clicking on the arrow beside it. Okay, so power of the people here. Uh, we'll try to answer as many questions as possible, depending on how many we can, you know, get through. Obviously, we might not be able to get through them all. But let's move on to uh, the, the adventure, the excitement. Here we go, my friends. The uh, it's time to join in welcoming our keynote speaker, Tom Derry, co-founder and COO of Rising Tide Car Wash, an organisation that employs over ninety autistic individuals in a successful car wash business. Tom, welcome, my friend. Ryan, thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. I'm so happy to be here today. So, if you're like most people who start a business, you're not only doing it because you want to make a great living. You're doing it because you care. You care about someone or something. And in my family's case, we started a car wash because we cared about my brother, Andrew. And Andrew has autism. Andrew had a great childhood filled with friends, wonderful teachers, and a family that really loved him. And he became a really capable young man. But when it became time for Andrew to graduate high school, we were really wary of what he, he would be able to do in his future. And it became really clear really quickly that without our help, it was unlikely that he'd be able to lead the full adult life that we knew he was capable of. So my father and I set out to build a business that could employ Andrew. And my dad at this point had been an entrepreneur for, for 20 years and didn't shy away from a big and bold vision. 
He wanted to build a business that could not only employ Andrew, but would create a community for him and would be purposefully built to empower individuals with autism. So we set the goal of employing people with autism for 80% of our staff, and this goal would guide everything else that we did. So after months of research, we decided to start a car wash business. And we decided to do this for a few reasons. First, we felt it really leveraged the strengths that people with autism had, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Uh, we also felt it was a really great platform to communicate how capable people with autism were because it's a, a community-based business where most of our customers live in the community and, and come repeatedly. And it's a really tangible service. So when they come by and they get a great car wash, they can readily tell they got a great service. And when they learn that people with autism did it, they may start to change their perception of what people with autism are capable of. And in the US, there's about 20,000 conveyorized car washes. So we felt that this business could potentially work uh, in most communities. And with the help of some incredible partners and a lot of hard work, the, the business has been really successful. We turned around our first car wash that when we purchased it, it was a struggling location washing about 35,000 cars a year to one today that washes over 170,000 cars a year. And we've been able to turn that into two more car washes that are just as successful, if not more successful than the first location. But I'm embarrassed to admit that when we started out, I was infected by an attitude that many have when it comes to employing people with autism. I felt they were either too much, too eccentric, too volatile, too needy, or not enough, not reliable, not intelligent, not social, to be the engine behind a successful customer service-driven business. I was afraid that they would fail us or we would fail them. But almost a decade later, I'm speaking to you today to share an inspiring truth that this success isn't in spite of our neurodivergent employees. It's because of it. So let's start by talking about some of the advantages that employees with autism bring to the workplace. It's been well-documented that many individuals with autism have stronger than normal attention to detail. People with autism also tend to have strong preferences towards schedule and routine, and this makes them ideally suited for following structured systems and processes. There's also a growing body of research that suggests that individuals with autism are able to identify abnormalities and exceptionally well, as well as patterns. This makes them really well suited for roles in software testing and cybersecurity. Many individuals with autism also display exceptional character traits, such as a great work ethic, a desire to prove themselves, high reliability, and unyielding honesty. And because people with autism inherently think differently, than most typical people, we often, uh, they often come up with innovative solutions. So let me talk about some how these uh, strengths play out in our workplace. So this is Dave. He's one of our best tunnel operators. And on a busy Saturday this past month, Dave did something incredible. Dave loaded 131 cars onto our conveyor in a single hour, breaking his previous record of 128. In doing this, Dave had to make sure each vehicle was loaded properly and scrubbed uh, for the bugs that cling to the front bumper, the uh, windshield, and the side view mirrors. He also had to check for a variety of potential safety hazards, like if a vehicle had a, a trailer hitch. And if he spotted any of these potential hazards, he had to press a series of buttons on his keypad to make sure that certain pieces of equipment were turned off to not risk damage to the vehicle. He also had to mind his own safety. Um, by being careful not to step on the conveyor track too abruptly. And finally, he had to clearly 
confidently and warmly guide customers onto the conveyor track and instruct them to put their vehicles into neutral. And this is easier said than done, as many of our customers get a bit overwhelmed by the process and have trouble following Dave's instructions. In this story, Dave shows incredible focus in his ability to stay on task amidst really challenging circumstances, incredible attention to detail, and his ability to accurately press the proper retracts and guide each vehicle through the car wash safely, and a dogged determination to break yet another record and prove his worth. Dave and his 90-plus colleagues with autism are the reason Rising Tide Car Wash is a thriving small business. And this is one of our supervisors, Ezra. He spent three years looking for employment after he finished high school to no avail until we hired him. And you could immediately see how eager he was to prove himself. And fast forward a few years, and that enthusiasm for work still remains. It doesn't matter how hot or how busy it is. Ezra wants to work. He'd work seven days a week if we'd let him. And when he's working, he's working hard. Even after a long day, I've never seen him slack off, slack, slack off, not even on a single customer's car. He consistently and reliably bends over backwards to satisfy our customers. And he regularly earns overtime hours because the managers know that if they need an extra hand, he's the person to call. Ezra is the type of employee that companies dream of having on their teams. Yet because he has an intellectual disability and some trouble communicating, no one would give him a chance. Their loss is our gain. And due to his exceptional hard work, he's risen to the role of supervisor, where we trust him to open the car wash in the morning, manage a crew of up to six team members, and ensure our customers are leaving happy with high quality service. So we've received significant value from our team members because we embrace not just the incredible talents that people with autism bring to the workplace, but also their perceived differences. As Dr. Stephen Shore says, people with autism tend to be the study of extremes. Their strengths tend to be exceptionally strong and their weaknesses tend to be challenging, but their weaknesses aren't any different. They're just more apparent. This makes employees with autism the consummate extreme user. And as all innovators know, designing for and with extreme users is a fundamental part of building the best solutions. So I'd like to propose a different way to look at the work that needs to be done to help team members with autism thrive. The autism community talks a lot about needing to make accommodations for people with autism. But what if we look at those needs, not as things that need to be accommodated for, but as insights into improving our businesses for everyone who uses them. In fact, I believe that taking on this mission offers the potential to transform every aspect of a business from the way that it hires to the way that it operates to the way that it builds relationships with customers. It's a ticket to moving our organizations from average to excellent. And I think that we underestimate the value of approaching neurodiversity this way because most organizations don't fail because they're bad. They fail because they're average and average simply isn't good enough anymore. So let's take a, take a look at some of the most fundamental problems our employees with autism have helped us uncover and solve. The first and most obvious problem our employees with autism have helped us solve is hiring based on interviews. So the truth is that traditional unstructured interviewing is a completely broken system. So let's start with this alarming statistic. Did you know that 81% of people are lying during interviews? That's right, 81% of people are either embellishing their skills or completely making them up. 
And this number only goes up when we look at more technical roles and we interview more extroverted people. But it gets worse. Research shows that our brains are wired to make quick decisions about people, sizing them up within the first few seconds of meeting them. And then the rest of the time we're speaking to them, our brains are essentially filtering all the information we're receiving to validate the initial perception of that person. And what information are our brains using to make these quick decisions? Things like height, tone of voice, physical attractiveness, handshake, eye contact. In fact, the term for this is halo effect, where we generalize one positive attribute about a person, and we tend to generalize it about everything about them. So if someone is tall and good looking, we tend to want to believe that they are kind, caring, and competent, and so on and so on. But how many of you think that these are actually effective measures of assessing one's ability to do most jobs? So it should come as no surprise that the results of unstructured interviewing are painfully poor. In an 85-year study of unstructured interviews found that only a 14% correlation between the interviewer's assessment of the candidate and job success. And across the board, from entry-level retail hiring to executive hiring, 50% of new hires fail within the first six to 18 months. So how do we do better? When we set out to recruit our first trainees with autism, it was clear right away that traditional methods of assessing talent were useless to us. Resumes, most of our guys didn't have them. Many of them had never worked before. College education, for the most part, no. Interviews, forget it. As we just covered, interviews are primarily a test of neurotypical social ability and, and therefore are inadvertently designed to weed out people with autism. So after some early conversations with trailblazers like Aspiratech and Specialist Sterna, and with the help of two corporate disability consultants, we designed a job audition where we actually went out and worked on real cars. This audition allowed us to see if the candidate was able to follow directions, had the physical ability to do the job, and was okay in the work environment. It also allowed us to see, it allowed our candidates to see if they really wanted to work in this type of environment. And this method provided us with a platform to build off of and refine. So as we ran into new challenges in the workplace, we could modify the audition accordingly. And over the years, we've been able to turn this into an iPad-based assessment that gives us a score at the end of it. And with data on hundreds of candidates, we're now able to tell with near certainty how likely someone is to pass our training program and receive a job offer. And this has worked exceptionally well for us. In the last 10 years of we've been doing this, we've only had three hires with autism fail due to job performance, and we haven't had a single one fail in over four years. Now, the second hidden, hidden problem is a little less obvious than the first, that you think great talent is the secret to a great business. So anyone who's studied business has heard something along the lines of get the best talent and the rest will take care of itself. To borrow from Jim Collins, first get the right people on the bus and then figure out where to go. And while it's likely true in many applications, especially when you're forming a new company or dealing with uncertainty, we've let it become dogma. And that's caused many people to overlook a paradoxical but equally important truth that we can create the conditions within a business to develop great talent. So let me um, illustrate this point by telling the story of Pat. Over the years, we've had many employees who have pushed us to do better, but none quite like Pat. Oh, how often I wanted to fire Pat. And the funny thing about Pat, who marched into the wash the day he turned 16 years old and demanded to be hired, was that he not only had a burning desire to be a good employee, but to rise to a management position. 
And we had already had neurodivergent employees on our management team, but they were a bit older and already had extensive employment experience. And Pat was plenty intelligent and exceptionally driven, but also really immature. His eagerness to move up in the organization sometimes led to conflict where he would try to take control uh, of a situation or do somebody else's job for them. And while Pat had the best of intentions, going over other employees' heads led to frustration, a lot of confusion, and sometimes even hostility from those employees. At this point, uh, we'd been in business for about a year, and we thought we had all of our operational systems really well buttoned up. And now Pat, the consummate extreme user, was showing us that we still had a lot of work to do. Since car washing is an on-demand production service, a lot like a restaurant, inevitably there are going to be some days where it's busy and we don't have enough staff, some days where it's slow and we have too much staff, some days where we schedule 10 people, and some days where we schedule 25. It can get very confusing very quickly, even without someone like Pat who's constantly trying to do everybody else's job for them. So to combat this variability, we built out a visual and well-defined hierarchy of the daily tasks and created training uh, that outlines exactly what someone in each role is supposed to do when it's busy, when it's slow, when it's understaffed, when it's overstaffed. And we would assign these roles based on who had the most confirmed skills on our training board to make it fair. So now our team members know exactly what each person is responsible for across dozens of situations that occur every day. And they know who is in charge and who to go to for help with a customer or for a new assignment. And another part of becoming a manager for us is the ability to give great customer service and coach our team members effectively. These are social skills that Pat often struggled with. He'd become overloaded or panicked. And to work um, through this with him, we developed developed a variety of if-then scenario-based trainings, specific rules to guide decisions in customer service, like if a customer has a request that's outside of our normal service offering, but can be done in less than three minutes, then we'll just take care of it for them as well as clear uh, frameworks for effective coaching, like asking what and how questions instead of why questions. And on Pat's rise to supervisor, he also helped us improve a variety of systems from the way that we organized our production floor to the checklist we built for every aspect of operations to the training program that we offer to our team. And from working with employees like Pat, we developed an organizational habit of almost obsessively focusing on creating operational clarity We've seen time and time again that when we don't provide clear expectations and guidance, our employees struggle or get frustrated. And on the other hand, when we do provide clarity, our team members tend to rise to those expectations and it drastically improves the efficiency of teaching new employees the skills they need to be successful. And our mission has pushed us also to develop exceptional managers. But when I started my leadership journey, I held many of the stereotypical leadership beliefs. I thought my job was to be the boss and I'd issue commands. And I thought that if people weren't hearing me, I just needed to talk louder. And that that was a narrative of leadership that I had absorbed uh, from previous jobs, my education and popular culture. But now a leader myself, I was really struggling. And research shows that leaders have a disproportionate impact on team effectiveness. This was not good news for my team as authoritarian Tom was guiding them. Luckily, my approach was failing so hard that it was impacting my ability to objectively, my ability to meet my objective of running a successful business that employed people with autism for 80% of our staff. My authoritarian fixed mindset style of leadership, coupled with a lack of skill and confidence to directly communicate, was simply not working. 
But when I started to lead by asking questions, being direct, admitting when I didn't have the answer, I started to finally see my team improve. They felt more safe. They understood what I wanted from them. And we collaborated on solutions instead of pointing the finger. Yet I doubt any of this would have, been, would have happened if I wasn't committed to our mission. I likely would have just tried to push people harder or tried to find better people because you know it's, it's got to be them. It, it can't be me. I felt committed to and comfortable with acting in service to our employees with autism. And over time, I've gotten better and better at doing this with the rest of my team too, because I've seen over and over and over again how much more effective this style is. The ball was rolling, but I doubt it ever would have gotten going if it wasn't for our team members with autism and our mission. And this momentum got us moving towards the type being the type of company that develops everyone under its employee. Most organizations focus on developing only their high potential team members. But this is a mistake because so much of what makes us high potential is the context of a situation. In a famous Harvard study of elementary school students, teachers were given a list of students who had scored in the top 20% of a cognitive, cognitive ability test and therefore were considered high potential. Two years later, the researchers checked back and in fact, the students were performing at a higher level than their classmates. But the original test had been a ruse. The list of students was uh, completely random. The anointed children had indeed bloomed but not because they were innately more gifted or talented than the others. Their success came because the teachers believed in their potential and treated them in that way. They set high expectations and found ways to support their achievements. And the focus on clarity that I mentioned earlier is the foundation for our employee development platform. By having clear objectives and clear measures of success, our team has the makings of the feedback loop that research tells us they need to develop their skills. And targeted hiring programs like ours at Rising Tide also formalize the belief that all kinds of workers have potential, given the right support. It makes it easier for managers to behave differently and leave behind the punitive practices that they may have experienced elsewhere. In supporting our team, our leaders learn right away that they need to use clear language and constantly deliver important feedback, even if it's uncomfortable, because it's core to how we execute our mission. They also learn that the most important responsibility they have is to support their team, not direct them. And these feelings of service towards their team help provide the positive intent that we all wish we had from our managers. We're also constantly striving to improve our, the tactics we use to develop our team members, from one-on-one -on -one conversations to constantly evolving our training program to real-time performance metrics and even the use of security footage as game film so we can show our team members what excellence looks like in action. So at first glance, this one might seem like it's wrong. After all, when an employee is incompetent or negligent and makes an obvious mistake that has real consequences, they deserve to be fired. Meanwhile, you're setting the standard for the rest of the team so that everybody knows consequences or actions have consequences. And that's a good, healthy fear that will sensitize people to the problems and hopefully they will not happen again. So this type of thinking, it seems reasonable enough, which is why it's such a sneaky hidden problem. In fact, firing fast may be the least effective way to prevent trouble down the road. It's holding you back from solving the problems that stand in your way of growth as a business. And it's also teaching your employees to hide their mistakes for fear of appraisal. 
Your employees who are struggling tend to be your best partners in solving so many of the problems that your business faces. By designing solutions around their needs, you often come up with solutions that work better for everyone. And to do this, you need managers who think like designers, who first look to understand the problem they're trying to solve from the user's perspective, who start by building prototypes and getting feedback from their team, and who are open to using that feedback to make the solutions the right solutions for the people who are actually using them. So here's an example from our business. We had several team members who were consistently making mistakes in the nightly cash out procedure. After observing how some of the team members were doing this procedure, it became clear that the root issue was lack of organization throughout the process. Once the money got mixed up, it was really difficult to find and correct mistakes. So we'd often either have too much or too little money from compared to what our reporting system showed. So two of our management team members designed what they called the money mat, which was essentially like a monopoly board for sorting cash. And the concept, it made sense in theory, but there was one problem. When they introduced the money mat uh, prototype to our team, one of our supervisors with autism, Luco, uh, he hated it, even though he was struggling the most with accurately closing the money. It was partially due to him being stuck in his routine and, and not wanting to change, but he also brought up some really good points about how it was structured, how some of the proportionality was wrong, and how there are some features missing that would have made it much more clear. So our managers worked with Luco to redesign it, and they incorporated his feedback and then rolled out uh, this final design that you can, you can see on this slide here. And after a few weeks of collecting data, we reran the numbers. And our error rate dropped from 31% to 4%. And it also dramatically reduced the time that it would take for us to teach new team members our closing process from what used to take a couple of weeks now only takes a couple of days. And not only was the result drastic, but right after that final money mat was implemented, Luco decided he wanted to transfer to a different one of our locations because it was closer to his house. And he immediately started advocating to his peers and his managers that, hey, we really got, got to get the money mat over here because it makes the process so much easier. And once we recognized how valuable it was to design around our employees' needs, we improved a whole host of systems. And the wonderful thing about embedding this approach into how you operate your business is that it provides a constant source of innovation and improvement because I don't think that you can ever actually have a perfect employee experience. When organizations commit themselves to employing people with autism and their leaders dedicate themselves to the growth of employees with autism and designing systems that work for them, a range of key outcomes ensue. Arguably, the most important outcome is the creation of psychological safety. Leaders who create psychologically safe environments create enough trust within their teams to allow team members to take risks and speak their minds because they aren't afraid of failing. Research from Amy Edmondson and Google shows that this is the single most important factor to a successful team. And by investing in the development of everyone on your team, framing failure as an opportunity for learning and growth, and by holding everyone to the same clear standards, you set the foundation necessary for psychological safety and effective teaming. And the strategies and tactics that we've talked about so far make it possible to fairly hold team members accountable because they have clear expectations, great training, and purposefully built tools that make it reasonable for them to meet the expectations and objectives set forth by the company. And when these condi conditions are set, 
accountability becomes a really powerful lever for growth because team members know what they're responsible for, that they're responsible for high expectations, but that they have what they need to reach those expectations if they work diligently. When an organization exists to achieve a, a clear mission beyond simply making money, it can serve as a powerful tool for aligning everyone's efforts in pursuit of that higher purpose. It also provides an unending source of inspiration for improvement because strong organizational missions are never fully actualized. It's impossible for us to fully solve the autism employment problem, provide great jobs and a perfect employee development experience for everyone who we employ. And because of that, there will always be work to be done and we'll always have motivation to continue to improve. And all of this culminates in a customer experience in union with the mission that customers want to support and be loyal to. And the results, they speak for themselves. We've built a thriving business that I'd put up against any other car wash operation in America. But I want to be clear that we're not unique. Nothing that we're doing is unique. A car wash is an inherently meaningless and challenging environment. If we can do these things in a car wash, operating with the same cost structures as our competitors, they can likely be done in any business. And the great news here is that none of what I've talked about really has any cost associated with it. By simply upgrading the way that you hire and reframing the way that your organization's leaders lead, you can create a business that leverages the power of diversity. And just think for a moment that the impact that this would have on society over the lifetime of each of our car washes will employ hundreds of people with autism, most of which will move on to other jobs in our community. And everyone who comes through our doors will leave understanding that everyone is valuable. So I'm sure many of you are thinking, well, how do we actually do these types of things in our communities and businesses? So let's talk about some of the tactics uh, that uh, could be helpful if you're aiming to start a neurodiversity at work program. So in general, um, I see a lot of well-meaning neurodiversity champions starting with a charity-based message, like please do a good thing by employing people with autism. But as you've seen in what I've talked about so far, there's real value for organizations who empower employees with autism and really any employment barriers. So I think it's a much more effective strategy to approach employers with an attempt to make their businesses better. And first, start by asking questions to understand where their pain points are. Most employers struggle to find good talent, especially in entry-level roles. And by identifying uh, the roles in a company that they're having difficulty filling, you can position neurodivergent candidates as a pipeline for better, more engaged talent. Next, you can also offer a way to de-risk the opportunity. I find a lot of employers, um, you know, they, they're really afraid of, of letting people down and having to potentially fire individuals with disabilities. And one way to overcome this is to start by framing employment opportunities as a training program. So you can learn what the, um, what the business does and, and what is expected of a role and what success means in that role. And then you can build a training curriculum based off their processes. And that will likely add value to the employer and will also help get buy-in from them, especially if you're able to clearly meet the success criteria for that role. And finally, you should talk about these success stories. You can talk about Rising Tide, Biddy and Bo's co uh, coffee shops, John's crazy so socks, 
Many businesses, especially local businesses, struggle to differentiate themselves from the competition. And these stories show how employing people with disabilities can impact their brand value. So remember, you're offering a transformative opportunity. If more organizations take up this strategy, not only will they be making the world a more fair and just place, but they'll be helping their organization acquire better talent, create better experiences, and build stronger culture. Because everyone wins when anyone can win. So thank you very much for listening. If anyone would like to learn more about what I've talked about so far, uh, I have a new book that just came out and it covers these topics in detail. And if you order it by the end of March, we have a free online course or an online course that we'll be giving away for free that teaches learners how to build autism focused startups like ours. So now I'd, I'd love to um, take some questions and continue to uh, have a conversation. Fantastic, Tom. Hey, that was amazing. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate you. your your time and effort in, into that. And I think some of the things that really stood out, I mean, being an autistic person, I've got a young autistic son, support, not direct. I'm three of the strongest words ever spoken. If, if you know, if the hundreds of people watching right now can, can really allow that to, to fully sink in, support, not direct, because we live in a world of direction whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a, whether you're the manager, you know, you are, you direct, that's, it's almost innate. And for an autistic person, this kind of demand avoidance, yeah. this kind of, you know, with the questioning authority, these are the kind of things that, you know, I struggle with on a daily basis. And then I also try to be a dad of, with a kid. And it's like, well, this, you, like my son's not going to listen to me. I've got a better chance. I mean, I, honestly, I've got a better chance of um, getting a tree to listen to me than my own son. Um, but I can still support him. And I found that really, really powerful, a really powerful thought. We've got lots of questions coming through. We're going to get to it in a sec. Got a bit of time up our sleeve. If you have a question, go to the Q&A pane, put it in there or upvote. And we'll get to those in just a sec. I, I loved the Harvard study talk and it, it, obviously a bit about your book, the power of potentiality, believing in someone. That to me, that hit hard, man. That resonated hard. Yeah, I, I think it, it's so important. Yeah. Can you talk about that? The idea of, I mean, the idea is whether you're a teacher in this instance or a manager, a boss, a corporation, an organization, believing in people against your, your natural response, which is to write, to write us off, right? Mm -hmm. We've, we're written off by society for one reason or another to believe in us that actually creates potentiality, which creates productivity, which creates a win-win situation in the business world. Yeah. I, I think it's what you need to do to be a really good manager for, for anyone, but particularly for, for neurodivergent individuals. I mean, it's easier, right, to write people off, to say that you're the problem. It's not me. It's not the company. It's not the way that we do things. It's you, right? That takes the pressure off of the, the leader to do anything about it. But the truth is, especially at least that we find in our business, is that 90 plus percent of the time, the business is failing the person. The person isn't failing the business. We're doing something wrong. Something isn't clear. We've created unnecessary friction. We've, we've built a barrier. Uh, and once we work with that person who's struggling, we can oftentimes find a much simpler and better solution that works better for everyone. It allows that person to now feel like, okay, like if I'm struggling, they're not going to like get mad at me. They're going to try to help me. 
it sends a really powerful message to the whole organization when you know you see somebody struggling and then all of a sudden the whole team gets a new tool or a new system or a new way of doing things that's better because that person was struggling right that's a really important message to the team it's also i think there's a little counterintuitive especially for organizations that are trying to scale this is a really uh, dynamic strategy to make it easier for you to scale because inherently when you're growing you stretch your systems you end up bringing new people into the organization that you have to train up quickly uh, and the simple more simple and clear a system is and easier to operate the more likely it'll be able to be operated at scale so it, it helps you grow your organization too amazing it's such great thoughts uh, i know this this I don't actually know because of the way we're doing this conference, but I don't know if people can see us as in your face when you're talking <laughs> and me, or if we're still sharing your screen or how it's oh, all going. People can hold let on. It. Let me, um, let me unshare that. Hold on one second. I can stop that now. I okay. Cause think I think there's be better if people actually got to see you and, yeah, and yeah, uh, absorb, sure. absorb who you are. Uh, so can I get to some questions? Is that okay? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. What kind of recruitment process do you use to attract your staff? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So we, the way we like to think about it is uh, we use a grassroots uh, recruiting approach. So we want to go into the community and find the people who know and love groups of individuals with autism. So that's generally your special education teachers, your job coaches, your transition coordinators, your people who work uh, in like a community liaison role for a, a nonprofit organization. It's not necessarily like the principals or administrators or the big leaders of these organizations, because they're generally like a degree removed from the actual like individuals. It's, it's the people who work directly in a classroom setting or in, in a nonprofit setting that work directly with, with individuals. And, and typically what we'll do is we'll, we'll talk to them. We'll bring them to the car wash. Cause again, it's tangible and it's community based. So we'll show them what we do. And that's a great way to create an advocate that now is thinking, okay, well, you know, Jimmy and Jane and, and, and Julie, like they'd be perfect for this. Let me go talk to them. Let me go, you know, tell them about this opportunity. And now you're getting a trusted source advocating, you know, for them to come out. A lot of times our, our employees are really, really nervous. The first time they come out for an interview, it's either one of their first interviews ever, or they've been turned down a lot and they're discouraged from the interview process. So having like a, a, somebody trusted that that's at telling them to, you know, nudging them to go, go give us a try is, is really effective. And, and, and frankly, we end up having far more people in, in the community that would like to work for us than we can actually employ, even though so we're employing about, you know, a little under a hundred individuals with autism in our community, but it's, it's, it's within five miles, a five mile area that we have all of those employees. And we still have, we could open multiple more car washes in the community with the amount of talent that we have. And that just is a testament to how, how many people are looking for work, even when filling traditionally filling these entry-level type roles is really difficult. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, it's it's using safe people. Keep in mind, you know, um, part of autism diagnosis is daily support needs. So mm -hmm. that means you need someone to help you. And if someone's helping you support you, you know, and they can provide you with opportunities, well, that makes total sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, did you ever have any difficulties with customers who didn't like engaging with autistic employees? Uh, I'm not sure if that's the case, but if it is, how, how do you handle that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, 
you know, it's a, it's, we're dealing with the public. It's a customer service business there. We have our interesting moments with customers, as I'm sure you can imagine, as anyone who's worked in service before can attest. Um, not many, I can't, I can think of maybe one or two off, offhand where it was like directly disability related, but it was, it's generally just somebody being difficult. Uh, and then like a, a, one of our team members with autism having difficulty then communicating back and, and, and it, it, like come kind of becoming a vicious cycle. So what we do in those situations, one, we always have like um, supervisors and managers around to, to, to liaise those situations that are really well-trained and how to deal with them. Many of them are neurodivergent as well. Um, but we, one rule that we have as an organization is we never use the mission as a crutch. So we're never going to say, oh, it's not like, don't like, it's not his fault. He, he has autism or something like that because we feel like that's really counterintuitive to what we're trying to do. So, you know, we're going to support the customer, try to help the customer in any way that we can, but we're never going to use the mission as a reason why we failed uh, to create a good experience for a customer. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, then that's, that is, that is really interesting, isn't it? Because you can't fall into the trap going, Oh, don't worry. He's autistic. Yeah. Oh, she's autistic. You yeah, know that, but in the end, we all have to, if we all want quality of life, we all have to be able to operate within the same world. So right. we all have to, we all have to meet in the middle. It makes, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, questions to get through before we run out of time. Uh, how does salaries for your employees compared to those of non-autistic people? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, market rate wages, um, probably a little above market rate for, for our roles um, because these are, these are tipped roles, but we still are paying above minimum wage, regular minimum wage in, in the States, essentially a lot of tipped positions. Uh, it's a lower minimum wage because the tips add on to that. Um, what, what we do is we operate at our like normal um, minimum wage plus tips. Um, and, and then, essentially we move up. There's a bunch of different, we do like micro promotions within the organization uh, from so entry level, like line associate to a team leader, to a base supervisor, to a supervisor, uh, to a assistant manager or sorry, manager in training, assistant manager and manager. So we create a lot of these rungs to make it where our team members, um, specifically the ones who may take a little longer to climb that ladder are still feeling progress and still earning raises uh, where if you only had a couple roles, it'd be harder for them to kind of, it would take, just take longer for them to get to those next positions. I hope I answered that now, effectively. Yeah, no, they're just quickly, this is, these yeah. questions are coming from Pat, obviously people watching, yeah. um, just quickly still on the pay thing. I'm sure you're aware there can, there can be a culture of uh, autistic people being easily exploited for mm -hmm. having open-ended training, you know, that kind of never ends yes. or it's training mm -hmm. that is yeah. basically full days and training level pay from yep. your um, framing your employment um, and training programs, how does that work? And how do you navigate those types yeah, of issues? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So um, our, our training program's paid, but what's, I, I think what, what to your point about it being like a never ending training program, we have a really clear success criteria, right? So the team member, in order to get um, a, a position, a, a regular employment position with us, they have to be able to do the process, our our our, um, our passenger side process, which is our like most entry level role, the passenger side of the vehicle, they have to be able to follow about the forty five step process. Be able to do that three times in a row in perfect order, accuracy, less than seven minutes. And if they do that, they get hired. 
So most on average, I'd say that's about four to six hours of training for someone to be able to do that effectively. Um, often, you know, we, but what, what our rule is in training is that as long as someone is making progress, we continue to train them. Um, so, so I think, you know, the longest we, we tend to go would be like four or five, four hour training, um, blocks before, you know, we would call it, but most of the time after the initial interview, which is about a 15 to 30 minute interview assessment that I talked about in the presentation that scored, if they do well in that they get over an 80 on that evaluation score, there's a really, really good chance that they're going to be able to pass that the the pre-hire training pretty quickly and, and get hired. Okay. Now, this is something I guess we talked about with support, not direct. So you mentioned reframing how leaders lead. How did you or how do you upskill your managers, your leaders yeah. in this area and any kind of ideas for people watching? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great question. And I think um, my, my own personal perspective is we tend to overemphasize the need for like curriculum-based training for this. So there's like fundamental training that we do to get our leaders to be, you know, effective. So, you know, clear communication training, um, you know, how to, you know, owning your mistakes and kind of just like general leadership concepts. But I think anyone who, who studies leadership or, or management and, and tries to teach it is you realize pretty quickly that the concepts are really easy. The execution is way harder. Um, so, what we find is a, like the coaching, the daily coaching and culture is what really makes it or breaks it. Um, there needs to be, right, like you can explain in a theoretical way why uh, owning your own mistakes is critical to creating safety on your team, right? You can lay out the research and tell the stories and sure, but it's a lot different that you just screwed up. You're upset about it. You're probably defensive about it. And to be able to take a step back and to say to your team, I just messed up. That was bad. That is not how it's supposed to be done. I, you know, I got overwhelmed and did X, Y, and Z. I'm sorry about that, guys. That's a lot harder to do, right? So it's that teaching and like that constant coaching and reinforcing these things uh, systematically that becomes part of how we promote people. So if people aren't leading in the type of value structure that we're looking for, uh, they don't get promotions. Typically, a, a large part of the the interview processes to move into uh, leadership positions uh, is kind of getting at how how people think about these things. Um, and then I will say that, like, so we've a number of times taken managers from other car washes and brought them into our organization, and you know, the, the initial feeling, and I think actually early when, when we didn't have a strong culture, um, there, you know, was a very different perspective on leadership from, from those people. But now that we have a strong culture and, um, a, a manager that may have, have a really different perspective on leadership than, than we have, they come into our organization and a lot of times they feel like a giant weight lifted off their shoulder. Like, I don't have to be this, like, dictatorial type manager that I, I used to think I had to be. And that generally becomes really easy to help the person 
change their perspective because it's it's such um a like experiential learning um for 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 people because they see our team members really try they really want to do a good job it just takes you know maybe a little bit more patience maybe a little bit more focus on using clear calm language um you know and and it tends to work pretty pretty maybe i think more seamlessly than than you would otherwise think yeah tom fantastic thank you so much for your time oh my pleasure ryan and you know anybody has any questions or you know you feel free to to reach out to me on linkedin or um you know on our social media we're really happy to support in any way that we can the 2023 Autism at Work Virtual Summit was proudly sponsored by DXC Technologies, GHD Engineering, La Trobe University, Untapped Group, ANZ, and SAP. Autism CRC is the independent national source of evidence for best practice. For more information on Autism CRC or the Autism at Work Virtual Summit, head to our website, autismcrc.com.au.